0: we're back baby after taking a week off we are back inside the gm studio podcast all about the tabletop rpg hobby mostly centered for the game master but players come on in we'd love talking to you i'm your host matt i am david and yesterday uh i haven't had a session zero with dave in about 19 a long, 21 a long years i like We actually decided to go for a session zero to start off the new campaign. If you haven't uh, been listening, uh, our last Curse of Strahd game ended in a TPK and we're starting over. Yeah. So uh, we had the big first session zero. And one thing I wanted to know was, Dave, what the fuck, dude? Where did all the house rules come from?
1: I don't want there to be a another fucking TPK where the players just don't have a chance to get to a successful level, complete a campaign. And so I'm like, okay, I, I kind of want there to be a few things in the game to kind of ensure their success a little bit more rather than just kind of going easy on the party. I don't want to have to do that I'd like to be able to keep things intense and the intensity of difficult and challenging things. We're a player down now, so we may or may not get a new player in our group. And if they don't want to assume that we will get a new player. So if we don't, then it's like we're down to a four person party. Two of whom are not super experienced and... I just don't want things to go awry, and it seems like a good enough time with a homebrew campaign to try a few things out and see if they work better. I don't know.
0: I like it. I Every time that you named one off, I was expecting maybe one or two, but uh, I was not expecting. I think you put out a list of like five, six, maybe even I'm like nine or ten of them, I think <laughs> it could have been. But yeah, that is so unlike you. Uh if this was ten years ago, maybe a little bit more, uh Dave was always that guy that was just like, house rules just muddy up everything they typically do don't yeah don't uh don't you know muddy shit up with the house rules, just try to stay as basic as possible, just stick to the normal rules, you'll be just fine, but I don't know, I'm digging it you're taking the gang up rules from savage worlds, mm-hmm. the faint points from Conan uh I like the uh you're doing the second wind thing. Even though it's a little bit different from fourth edition, and of course it's not like the 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 fighter's second one. Right. Uh, and temporary
1: uh, hit points. I think I, I didn't. Right. The temporary hit points. I didn't want there to be an excessive amount of healing that didn't uh, come from a healer. Didn't come from the healer feat. Didn't come from magic. I was like, temp hit points seem to be kind of an end around on that. They're a small buffer typically, and so I kind of put in place a couple of things, and I tried to communicate the spirit of each of the rules. Uh, But nobody seemed to have really any objections. Beto is basically just like, just count on me to not remember any of this. Uh, But I (laughs) like it. You know, I just don't understand. Uh, I'll just forget in like 10 minutes. Mm. So... But uh, it's like I said, I was like, hey, like most of the stuff isn't stuff that you need to remember specifically. It's stuff that are options available to you. So if you don't remember, then you just don't use them and you're just not maximizing your capabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the exception of I changed the rules for op attacks a bit. Uh, mostly because I kind of just got tired. I, I want to have more dynamic encounters and I think the rule changes will achieve on a small level, some of the tweaks that I want, which is the game to be a little more narrative focused, to emphasize party solidarity, party camaraderie, conflict, and then being a little more thoughtful about certain aspects of the game for encounters to be challenging, but not frequent. I don't the whole marathon dungeon dell. I'm just really kind of over. It. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I think each adventure could have several encounters and plot threads that maybe culminate in a one level dungeon, 12, 15 rooms, but these 20, 30 room dungeons with multiple levels and um i think that needs to be a little more deliberate if you're going to have scope like that and to populate them yourselves otherwise they can just feel a little bit like a slog
0: when you came up with all the cuz it's going to be a lot easier for us to heal like during you know like during combat and all that we're not going to have an actual healer or anything Did you come up with all that other stuff that you had for the short rest and using the hit dice and uh, we get all of our hit dice back every day or after a long rest. Did you come up with that before or did you realize, oh, they're not going to have a healer. I should work on something new. I did it
1: before. I didn't have a real clear sense of what classes everybody was going to play. I was just thinking this would make more resources available at your disposal, and it would mean that you could likely push yourselves a little more for challenging encounters instead of having
0: to constantly be like, "Oh,
1: but I might need it later, like "Oh, I save these spell slots or whatever."
0: Mm-hmm. I call that the jason jones syndrome just,
1: i don't I don't understand that i sure I get not wanting to burn through all of your uh, resources but uh, something can help you now it seems beneficial to you now and but when adventures are designed to be these big marathon things with you not having a clear sense of what's going to be around any corner you that it fosters that kind of thinking and I don't want to foster that kind of thinking so I'm trying to get out of that mindset so I thought the session zero went fairly well. Everybody seemed to be putting in the time and the energy into thinking through their characters. And I was reading through and trying to talk through uh, with a couple of the players, although I didn't really get anything from Mike as is typical. Yeah. Like, okay. He just kind of sat there quietly and worked on his character. And I asked him a few questions about what he thought. It oh, sounds fine. That sounds fine. Whatever. It's good. Either way me. I'm fine.
0: Yeah, I was actually, uh, while I was having fun having all the GM uh, powers on Roll20 while we were doing it, I was watching Patrick actually type in all of his backstory and stuff for his character. Like, Where the fuck has this come from? Yeah. It was good. Yeah. It was really good. I thought it was pretty solid. I'd
1: like to tease a little more of that out of him during the game. And... But, you know, I, I get it. He's not a super talkative guy, but I'm.
0: I just want to know if, if he wrote that on the spot right there or if he had that all planned. Because the way I'm still, that that kind of blew me away how good it was.
1: Well, I think he had some time to think about it. And he's thinking about it Then maybe recognizing that he, he doesn't need to min-max everything or whatever. Mm-hmm. A cooler character concept and he could thrive in the. In the game without having to have a super min maxi character. So that's cool, and I want to encourage that sort of thinking. Um, I'm going to try not to get too ambitious with the first adventure. I'm going to. I like that all of you gave me some person or whatever in your past that I could kind of. Put in a quest or put in an adventure so i have like a scaffolding of npcs that i could draw from that i don't have to build up from the ground and establish relationships with them mm. that'll be cool uh, There's some plot threads here and there you did a pretty good job of kind of like leaving some things open and somewhat mysterious like i said i want there to be it seems like what you and Beto are most interested in is probably more in line with what i was more inclined to do uh i don't want to get rid of the core elements of a dungeons and dragons adventure i'm not trying to have it be like all role playing negotiation political intrigue there needs to be some swashbuckling action and all that stuff and uh, but i just the balance of a little away from that. Uh, Published adventures tend to be too much in one direction or another. Try to start with the baby and try to not get over ambitious with a whole bunch of plot but have a few mysteries, have a few things that are exciting and boom players small plot arc for the first adventure and then build on it from there and introduce some new concepts as we as we move along. So
0: have you decided if you're going to homebrew the world yourself or are you going to stick to uh Toril and the Forgotten Realms?
1: That I don't really know. On one hand, I kind of do I'm not really so convinced that world building is super important as far as what world it is, what is important is the texture of it so on one hand I don't really want to be tied to any sort of geography, lore anything like that Mm -hmm. but there is some benefits to that Um, so I'm I'm unsure, I I think I'll probably just kind of go with a generic world every time I've ever tried a homebrew world it really doesn't seem too distinct or different from the world of Forgotten Realms or the world of Greyhawk or Mystara or whatever it um, just depends on what corner of that world you're in but I might not even touch on it I might just kind of leave it as it is and I mean, you're using the Forgotten Realms pantheon of gods and then it's, the presumption is that you're in that world that's mm-hmm. about all it really is at this point, but I'm probably go- likely to set it so far away from known canon geography that that it won't be like, well, let's go up to Weisswind Dale. are like, going to really far from it. Yeah. From the yeah. other side of the continent. So, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I thought that the session zero went good. I'm looking forward to the game. Uh, maybe getting a new player. I played a session with uh, him and his old lady and my old lady last week. And we played like the Dragon of Fire Peak got into that. That was fun. Nice to play with some different people.
0: Yeah, did you run I that? I ran
1: that, yeah. Did
0: you guys do it in person?
1: Yeah. yeah, we did everything in person. Oh, nice. I went to go out and buy a battle mat because I didn't have one. I didn't think I had... We had this on the floor, though. It was kind of a because I don't have chairs and set up for all that at my house.
0: Oh, I wanted to ask you that. Um, what is your perfect size game table? Or like how small is too small? And what is like the perfect size? Well, how many players do you have? Uh, we're going to go with five.
1: Okay. Four or five. I'm a big fan of the GM having his own separate little table or desk. Mm-hmm. That's the general rule that I like to have. Uh, I would say a GM table probably should be, I don't know, two, three feet by two and a half feet, somewhere in there is ideal. And then for the players, you have four players around a pretty big table. I would say probably six or seven feet by three and a half, four feet is Mm -hmm. ideal. Uh yeah, so you can have a battle map splayed out, everybody can have all of their dice, their character sheets. Um you shouldn't have to have any of that stuff on the area that you're playing. There should be room for your your snacks, your drinks, uh, ashtray if you smoke. All that stuff.
0: Yep, character sheets and a nice place to roll your dice.
1: Yeah. I mean, we I have a dice tray, so I try to use that, mm-hmm. but as well as a a place to keep any resource books that might be needed during the during the uh, the game. Mm-hmm. But that said, you can probably get by with a small folding table that's two and a half by two and a half feet. Pinch.
0: I was thinking about this uh, the other day because we were, uh me and a couple other people were talking about it at the at the Marvel mm-hmm. game because there um, we play on. One of the players, he has a fucking, this very large, very, very nice condo. And in the kitchen, we play on, an, on the island in the, in the kitchen. But I mean, this thing is like eight foot by like five foot. And of course there is, there's six of us as the players. So there's seven of us all together. And it makes really good for the lot of us. And uh, I was talking about it, you know, back in the day when we played down in Nate's basement, we played a pi- on a ping pong yeah. table. And I thought that was the fucking bee's knees, man. There was room enough there for was everything. the biggest table. Yeah. yeah. And now my thing is I have two six-foot folding tables that I set up, and that's the perfect size for me with my four players, and I can have a fifth in there, and it's still perfect. But uh, I was talking to Rob, and we were talking about getting together, like some of our other friends and just having a little one-off here pretty soon. He's like, oh, yeah, we can play on my table. I was like that little three foot table. He's got a around a, round, a circ, circle table in his kitchen that I swear is only three foot across. He's like, yeah, we can play on that. I'm like, dude, there's like five of us that are gonna be playing. He's like, oh, it'll be fine. We'll all fit on there. I was like, uh, uh, we used to play on a on a table like that all the time. I was like, uh, uh, no, we, I've been so spoiled by having just lots of table space recently. And some pictures that I see of people playing online uh, when they play in person, it is it's like a little coffee table or it's a table that's not very much bigger than that one. And it just makes me think, like, have you never had the benefit of playing on a nice-sized table? <laughs>
1: Maybe. Not everybody has that uh, luxury. The table, yeah, my coffee table, it probably depends for me, too. My playing surface doesn't need to be very big. Mm -hmm. But like my setup here, like I'm using the table that I'm using now, I can have my books over here on the arm of the couch. I can put things on the bottom part of it that I don't need readily accessible. Uh, The old adage of the more space you have, the more you probably fill that space with shit Mm -hmm. is probably true. You have a giant, giant gaming table, then you'll just put everything under the sun that you think you could possibly need and that's really laborious if you're only playing for a few hours and you realize that setting it all up and packing it all up takes 10 minutes and yeah. then you probably could do well to just cut back the essentials a small notebook or, or a couple of note cards, a pencil a dice tray, your DM screen and what else do you really need? You don't really need a lot of other stuff Mm-hmm. But that said, it probably depends on how involved your game is. But yeah, I'm with you. Like a, th- a small three-foot table doesn't seem doable. No, it's, but...
0: it's a little miserable.
1: Yeah, I don't know.
0: So yeah, I just wanted your opinion on it because I don't even know. Well, yeah, you guys uh, would play at the uh, machine shop every now and then. And that table is actually pretty good. When Mike puts together, he puts those three folding tables together.
1: Oh, we don't do that anymore. We use just the big table.
0: The, the, the Ooh, three folding tables works table.
1: fine, but the other one is probably seven and a half feet by three and a half feet. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's not super deep, but it's uh, pretty long. So all three of us fit there pretty comfortably. We probably could fit four players fairly comfortably at that table. Uh, five might be a little bit of a threat, but... Uh, Yeah, uh, I just, generally speaking, the reason that extra space is is viable for me is that people like to keep things on the table that aren't gaming related, um, like snacks and Mm -hmm. uh, beverages. And yep. you should try to keep those away from your gaming products as much as possible, right? You don't want Cheeto. Yeah, dust. That's my big. Yeah, You don't yeah. want Cheeto dust all over your fucking dice or like someone to that sp- or when you've Coke got your, on your character if you have a sheet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You got a beer bottle or a can and you're putting it on your character sheet because you don't have anywhere else to exactly. put it. And it's like, eh, come yeah, on, it's like man. sweating. all. So it's like
1: you try to segregate those things as much as possible. And the more space you have, the more you can do that. Mm-hmm. And it depends on what the scale of your encounters are you have a big battle mat and you're having these giant siege battle encounters with like three large creatures and a dozen medium creatures and the PCs and there's this tree and a windmill and you're drawing it all out or you're 3d printing all of it. Then yeah, you need a lot of space, but if you're using Mm -hmm. theater of the mind then you don't even need a battle mat or minis. So
0: no, I just, I've had it plenty of times before that once your table becomes cluttered, like you said, you know, my drink takes precedence here, as well as my Cheetos. And Matt says I have to have a bowl if I'm eating my Cheetos. They can't eat them out of the bag. So my character sheet and my notes are going to go on the floor <laughs> while I eat my snacks and drink my drink. And then my dice will just kind of like mingle in between the bowls and my my four empty cans that I have up here.
1: Part of the reason is like oh god. Part of the reason I love dice trays because I have a rule now that it's like if it's not in the dice tray. The roll doesn't count. I don't want people like yeah. you have drinks and you have other things and people start throwing dice and they start bouncing off things, knocking shit over like it. Just put it in the damn tray. <laughs> It'll be just a small tray. Yeah. It's just
0: yep. it's not a roll. if it doesn't It doesn't count if it's not in the tray. And so we did that. I think that's one universal rule that's going around right now is if you have a dice tray, you roll and it bounces out of the tray. It doesn't count. It's gotta be inside the tray.
1: Yeah, because it just gets it you would it used to be that was uh whatever was convenient for the player where they would be like, well, you know, I mean it's just a random die. Why does it matter if it fell on the floor? And it's like because Mm -hmm. earlier when it fell on the floor, you picked it up and re-rolled it. That's why. Yeah. But I mean, it's just random is random. It's like, yeah, that's true. Random is random. It shouldn't matter. You know, interference. It's like it's not interfering with the die roll <laughs> it's a fucking random polyhedron piece of plastic that it how is it interfering with the edge of the table any worse than it interfering with the edge of the dice tray like it is the same thing right. physics doesn't discriminate in any sort of way that matters statistically for random number generation but anyway <laughs> all right let's get into a community
0: question sure. shall we
1: i don't i don't have my dice tray but i'm just going to roll die not and <laughs> that's car. right
0: we like to hear the little clinkety clank of it
1: i can never hear it on the audio oh 20 oh shit i mean it,
0: oh wow it, it Ooh, just okay
1: random. i'm sure it's not better than any of the other questions but
0: no it's not i just randomly throw I know, shit but on you there. know you're always happy when you, you get know when, when i first started doing yeah when i first started making the list for community questions I was, I was like oh i'll put all the juicy ones at high numbers and all the shitty questions at low numbers and then I got lazy, and I'm just like, this is a lot of work, yeah. and I'm just going to put them on the list as we go. make value judgments about what's good? Yeah. It? Oh, yeah. There's right, that what have too we got? With it. All right, this one comes from LancerCaster. Hmm. Like him already. Newbie GM question. Started GMing with Pathfinder 2E's beginner box, and while my players enjoyed the first floor and first session, I felt like I was a little robotic. Is this an issue... Or- is this a issue of running pre-written content, or am I the problem? I think he means an issue. I did issue, feel but... I was also, yeah, I did feel I was also combat heavy and RP light. PS, fighter with power attack strong. Pizo, please nerf. I'm going to start with uh, anything that's pre-written. If depending on how much you read it beforehand and how well you know what's going on things are going to come out a little bit robotic you're not going to have that inflections and that little bit of flavor that you want to throw in there yourself to make it feel alive if you're especially if you're just reading the flavor text and it's your first time really reading through uh that could be something and also you said you just started you're you're a brand new gm so you still got to find your you got to find your own flavor. Uh, that's just what I have to say to start. That would be my uh, my initial diagnosis. Dave, you got anything?
1: That's a pretty good initial diagnosis. Um, prepackaged uh, campaign material never has much solar flavor to it. It's most mostly mm-hmm. to give you an overview of the game, and consequently, is going to be role playing or role playing light and combat heavy the biggest thing that I would impress upon somebody is don't get too, don't feel too much of a need to adhere strictly to what it is that the adventure says needs to happen. That's probably why it seems a little robotic and you're, seemingly wooden you shouldn't be if if this is your first time reading over the text of the thing when you're playing the game then shame on you you're doing a bad job read o- <laughs> read over the shit don't do, don't be yeah. too much concerned with reading exactly the flavor text try to make sure that you understand the spirit and the intent of the adventure where the fun lies where the drama is and don't fixate too much on each little cranny of the adventure. But all in all, if you're running an adventure straightforward, forward, that might be the best way to get your bearings as a GM. Mm-hmm. It might be the best way to learn what your players want. If they had a good time, which, you know, players prefer a game to no game. So they're probably happy yep. that you ran something. I didn't do a phenomenal job with the the session that I ran this week or even the last Curse of Strahd session that I ran. But I go, okay, well, you know, what do I learn from that and how do I tweak things if you're going to use Packaged Adventures? They're going to seem a little soulless. Try to figure out ways in which you can inject some sort of your style as a GM into it instead of just reading everything directly wrote from the book mm. if you think you can do better or better is even subjective if you think you can give your players an experience in the game that is more in line with what they want than what is in the prepackaged adventure then just run with it don't be too fixated on deviating they won't know because they don't have any idea and so that would be my advice and to how to deal with something like that if it you feel like you probably came off a little robotic and stiff it's probably because you did Mm
0: -hmm. but that
1: doesn't mean that the players didn't enjoy it it probably means that it was just a little more mechanics heavy and probably a little more straightforward which intro adventures are designed to be that way they should be that way because they might not be knowing the game that well either they're not getting into character and like you know thinking about their inner turmoil and and how to interact with the role playing. And they're just like, how do I make an attack roll again? Like, what is that thing that I yeah, do? Right. <laughs> Which one's the D20? Right, there you go. Like, that's plenty of players I know they have been playing in a while. So they're like, they're like, oh, I rolled this one, right? The D20, that's a D12. <laughs> like,
0: yeah. Oh, dude, when I first started, I did that a few times. And the D10 and the D8 did that.
1: My favorite one is when Baldwin. someone rolls a d. You're like, "Art roll d ten. Is this one right? The one that looks like a pyramid. It's like, no, it's one that has a few more sides than that. Okay, you roll it. Oh, I got a zero. Damn it. <laughs> um, no, that's a ten. But okay.
0: Uh, and uh, just as the, uh, the the questioner here had saying that he started with Pathfinder Two E's beginner box, which I haven't gotten to read yet. I uh, Pathfinder Second Edition is kind of cool, but it just doesn't. It, it hasn't really like called to me yet. I want to read it. I uh, just haven't gotten to it yet. But uh, beginner adventures are definitely, they don't have the, the oomph into it yet that a lot of the bigger ones do. But that's the beauty of them because they're so short. And that's why Dave and I will always say that Lost Mind of Fandelver is like one of the greatest fucking pre published adventures. And it ever. might be the best. Because it's it... so short because it's so short because it just has this it doesn't fuck around it just lets you find out it's because you can read it and i i think i could read that whole thing in about 15 minutes and then maybe you can just go through it as much as you want and you can you get what needs to happen it's... through it. it's just so simple The
1: follow-up dragon of Spire peak is pretty fucking good too because It really does give you a good survey. It's enough complexity and texture to the world without being overwrought. There's enough opportunity for role-playing, but doesn't necessarily call for it because it's not character-driven. It is plot-driven. And so there's a good mix of central plot and auxiliary quests that are somewhat tied to the central plot. So there's a good mix in there. They were, those those two box adventures were very well thought thought through, which is funny because I think the Tyranny of Dragons came out prior to that, and that is it, it did it grander in scope and in ambition, but flatter in texture all
0: over the place. So, yep, yeah, I agree with that. <clears throat> but I also think it's because because it lacks the uh, the grandiose scope of it all. That it just makes it better. It's pretty It's pretty easy. You know, it's just like Black Spider, bad. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, first thing you're going to do, you're going to run up against these goblins, this bad. Then, yeah, just Black Spider, bad. You're going to go to this town called Vandalin. You're going to meet some people. It's real cool. You're going to find out that some people there suck. Some people are kind of cool. It's just so streamlined and so simple. That you can play with it as much as you want. But there is some there and is some intrigue
1: it. and some mystery, right? The oh, red yeah.
0: brands and glass
1: staff and who is he and he's in league with the black spider, but it's not so overwrought for beginner players that it would be like, How did I ever have a chance of solving this, right? Like I don't mm-hmm. um, I mean that that actually might segue unless we have any community uh, or reader, listener emails it probably segues nicely into our main topic today, which is uh story items mm-hmm. because the story item is a pristine example of kind of ignoring the mechanics of something and the, uh, fixating on its, uh, more concrete purpose in the interest of a grander narrative and story. So,
0: yes, well, uh, so, that is a great segue, and we're going to segue into that by, first of all, asking, Dave, what is the difference between a story item and a MacGuffin?
1: A uh, story item is actually central to the plot.
0: Ooh, and I'm going to do one even better. Story item, MacGuffin, red herring. Differences, Okay. All right, go.
1: so a story item is central to the plot, which means what it is and what it does matters. Now, a story item might be a MacGuffin. They're not necessarily Mm -hmm. mutually exclusive uh, because the purpose of a MacGuffin is to reveal the motives of the characters in the dramatist persona of the adventure. It's not really important what it is and what it does. What's important is what the characters will do to get it. So as the classic example of a MacGuffin, The One Ring is probably the, well, it's not the best example of a MacGuffin because it's both a story item and a MacGuffin. It Mm. does have some power, but it's never really well defined what that power is. A better example is the Maltese Falcon in The Maltese Falcon. The Maltese Falcon, really, it doesn't matter that it's not really valuable, as you find out in the end of the film. It really isn't valuable but the characters all believe that it's valuable and what they will do to one another to get it is what's important the jewels in a spy film the microfilm in a noir typically these are MacGuffins the Rambaldi device in alias is a good example. like what does the Rambaldi device do it's not till like the end of the fifth season that you actually find out that like what it actually does and it's not that important what's important is what the characters will do to get it um what it reveals about their personality. A red herring on the other end of the spectrum is something that initially seems like it has importance, but is just introduced to confuse the players and throw them off the track of something. So a red herring need not be an item, although it can be, but a red herring might be a concept introduced where you're trying to investigate some cult activity and... Uh, you know the cult is doing some sort of bad stuff in the town, and and you know you you suspect that that is infiltrated some upper reaches of the royalty or something, and then at one point in the narrative of the adventure, you discover that one of the cult leaders is a is a wealthy businessman, and he has had some dealing with uh, like let's say the the king's guard, the head of the king's guard they had struck some sort of uh, commercial deal where they went in together to buy some real estate or something that must have cost a lot of money. And so you naturally assume that that's relevant because in the narrative of an adventure, the narrative of a film, the narrative of the book, you're not typically shown things that are not relevant. So you, you ferret that out. And then it turns out you get to the end of the plot and it turns out like, well, no, the Kingsguard guy had just saved a bunch of money. He didn't know this guy was in the cult at all, actually. He just knew he was a wealthy businessman. He needed an investor in this piece of property. They went into it together. It has nothing to do with the cult. It has nothing to do with anything nefarious. It's just exactly as you learned it. It's not really even relevant, but just your learning about it makes you think it's relevant. So it's kind of a clever little thing that you do with the players. It's always fun to keep them on their toes by introducing information Mm -hmm. that isn't relevant because there will always be in any given investigation about something, something that isn't relevant.
0: I think that's one of my crutches uh, whenever I actually run medieval fantasy. One of my worst crutches ever is the red herring <laughs> over and over and over again. And I don't know why I keep going back to that because I'm just like, <laughs> got one on you. Actually,
1: one of my favorite tactics is to do it with players that have great in- investigation and great perception. It's like you notice everything. You notice everything. So noticing things. Uh, teases out the diff- the difference between being able to notice something and pick out its significance. And it's fun to play with the players a little bit if they have really good perception Is they assume, okay, he's going to tell me everything that I notice that's relevant to me. Maybe not. Maybe if it's high enough, he'll just tell you everything that you notice and mm. something that might seem peculiar and you will fixate on that. Maybe it's not peculiar. This is probably part of the big uh, downsides to having an overactive like, perceptive ability is that you can't just shut it off. You can't just go like, "Eh, I'm just going to choose to ignore the things that aren't relevant. I don't know what's relevant. So my brain's always just gathering and sorting information. And uh, I don't know what... uh, Do you have any other distinctions between... As far as I can tell, those three things are delineated in that way. But a story item to me is something that's relevant to uh, the plot of the adventure and the plot of the story, which is, like I said, it could be a MacGuffin and actually probably should be a MacGuffin, but a MacGuffin doesn't need to have story significance in order
0: to be a MacGuffin. You know, whenever I think of a MacGuffin, I think that it's something that you're searching for. Mm -hmm. Uh, A story item can be given to you, and it's just something that you have to have on your person or something that you'll have with you for the rest of the adventure. And it has something like you said, an importance to it. Maybe you don't know what the importance is, or maybe you do. It's just something that you have to hold because on because a to.
1: story item need not be something you're, you're questing for, right? A story item could be right. a key that you don't know the significance of until the, the final point mm-hmm. of the adventure. Uh, a good example of this is in Conan the destroyer. The, The jewel that they're on a quest for is a MacGuffin in a way because it shows what the guardians of the jewel that is the key to get the horn will do to protect it. But it really is hinged to the plot in some way, which is if they don't have that, they can't get the horn, and only Jenna's character can touch it. So it is very much tied to they are on a quest for it, but like you said, a story item might be something that you gain significance it might gain significance as the plot goes on where a macguffin is something Mm. that you're trying to secure like the one ring yeah um but if it has some greater implication in the plot then it is a story item and if it if it's used as a device to reveal something about the characters then I would say it's a MacGuffin. By the way, that I just went to the movie theater, and the bar in the movie theater where I went is called MacGuffins, and I was really happy about it. Oh,
0: no it's shit. I like, thought oh, it's
1: a nice name for a bar in a movie theater. Yes, that's pretty awesome. I like that. Is Are you a bigger fan of... Let's say you have a story item, and mm-hmm. maybe it is or is not a MacGuffin to a varying degree. You mentioned that you're a big fan of the Red Herring. Are you a big fan of having a story item be something that is like would for instance have a stat block this is these are the enumerated like like an artifact an artifact could be a story item it could be a MacGuffin Uh, Mm -hmm. if you're a fan of that or maybe you're only a fan of it under certain circumstances what are the circumstances like having a thing that says this is a Vorpal sword and it does X Y and Z to whoever has it can do Mm -hmm. these things or maybe having it something like again besides allowing you to be invisible the one ring in lord of the rings like what what does it do how does it give you
0: i don't know it's the one that rules but how right you don't know i know it's not like it makes your charisma
1: 35 it doesn't say that it never says that right or if you recall there was um in my initial uh the second edition campaign that i was running there was a story item in that way where it was implied the guy that was like the big military leader just kind of known as the warlord Mm -hmm. um he had this like rod or or scepter or something like that it was heavily implied that that was kind of the key to his his dominion over men but you never learned that it was like oh here's why because it has eight charges and they come back at dawn and when you spend a charge, you can like influence up to X amount of people that need to make a charisma saving throw. It's like, it wasn't like that, you know, and
0: mm-hmm. are you yeah. a fan
1: of the former or the latter or a combination depending on the circumstance?
0: I am. Uh, like you, I'm a fan of hyping the, the item up, the story item. I like it that there is tales of this thing is, has all this power. Mm-hmm. And if you hold it, you can sway armies. Yeah. Uh, and as soon as people, you know, as soon as the players find it, they do. They find out that it's powerless. It's just this piece of art or it's this, it's a rod, it's a scepter, whatever it might be. <clears throat> but it's just because of the stories mm-hmm. of it. That's the power that it has is the stories of it. And whoever holds it has this power just because people have heard about it. Th- th- that's one of my favorites. That's that's a really that, allegorical, and I, and I, like,
1: um, I mean there is a middle ground there where the item actually does have some powers, but isn't, but oh, isn't yeah. like enumerated. That's a more of a, no, allegorical. No, no. I don't, I like that though. That's really cool. I never thought about putting that.
0: There's sometimes sure, but I much prefer that like the stories of it uh, is what gives it its power. Uh, but I also like when story items are the MacGuffins in uh just like back in our second edition game, or there's that other one. It's the, the spear, of something or other, where it's the spear of seven seven parts. That's the what the rod is. of seven parts in D D, yeah. or rod of seven parts is that, or what the it is? rod of lordly the rod, Mark. staff of yeah, seven parts, staff whatever of it is. Something. Either way, uh, back in the second edition game, we were doing that where you had this. We had to build a key, mm-hmm. but you had to find all the parts yeah. to it. And as soon as you found one part, again, it didn't do fuck all. Where like the the staff or rod of seven parts, whatever it is, each part has a power mm-hmm. to it. But as soon as you put it all together, then it becomes this like godly artifact. Mm -hmm. But I liked the key part, like you did. I like where you have to go and you find these pieces and you have to put it together to make it into something as well. I think that is one of my favorites that I've used quite a bit more than just the the red herrings. Especially I've I haven't used as uh, I've used the more multiple MacGuffins that make the story item. Mm -hmm than anything else just because i don't know what it is maybe it's because that was art my first adventure that and i have just straight uh great nostalgia and great re- uh remembering those stories i just keep going back to it if i do like uh hell even when i was doing like my old west uh games i had some shit like that like i had uh like jesse james revolver and shit and you had to put it back together it's just like oh yeah you got to find all these parts and put that shit back together because that's badass
1: i'm a big fan of yeah the the story item that has Probably doesn't have allegorical power, but does have some sway, has some magical Mm. capabilities. But just enumerating it, to me, it it limits it in a way that if it's really important to the plot, especially if it's a MacGuffin and everybody wants it, then yeah, it's it's almost it's almost irrelevant with the actual powers of it are and if you're trying to tell a good mm. story again or why does everyone want the ring well the ring is you know powerful it's like but in what ways how <laughs> okay it makes you invisible <laughs> that's a the, the specific power we know that it has and that's a cool yeah. power and it's the one that rules but, them all but how does it do that? how it do that right we don't it it doesn't matter it's the one we, it's the one that rules them all it doesn't matter to us and it shouldn't <laughs> matter to us so Mm-mm. that I'm more of a fan of that style of a story item. I feel similarly about. Um, I really don't like that. They have gods that have statistics. Yeah, I think that's really yeah. silly. It's just like to me. A god should be something that even a 20th level adventurer would just seem like a cockroach to it. Right. Like it's
0: just because yeah, these things are gods
1: are yeah, gods. They shouldn't have like, well, he has 900 hit points. It's like he should have like infinite hit points. He should be totally invulnerable to mo- mortals. Do you know you know what the word god means, right? <laughs> this is this should be something that is not a thing that even a party of 5 20th level adventurers should ever be able to do. There should be more threatening terrestrial monsters that are horrible, dragons and so forth. But to have a god to me seems to almost underwrite I don't know, but I mean, it's in that theme of that whole Norse mythology. If you're like in that whole, you know, the Norse gods could die and they would regularly get killed. So mm-hmm. they'd be dead forever. It's like, oh, fuck, I'm dead. Okay. <laughs> Aren't gods immortal? But I'm a bigger fan of the story items to uh, being a little less defined concretely. Uh, explain to me what are some of your more memorable story items and uh to varying degrees of success. Why do you prefer that tactic? Do you just think it kind of leaves the the mystery? I know you're big you're big on like mystery and intrigue and
0: I am. I am. I'm a big fan of mystery and buildup. Uh because I like to have the campaign big bad. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, I want my Ganondorf uh at at the end of it all. Sure he has his generals and whatnot that you're gonna be facing off against throughout but throughout this entire campaign and this is what i did for like all of fourth edition and uh when i did the the level one through 20 of uh, fifth edition with cody and nate and all those i split it up though because i had the first one which was one big bad and then it was two but either way like in fourth edition uh it was Zastam. ham was my huge big bad at the end and all throughout it they were all trying to find these Artifacts that had something to do with their oh god what do they call those back then epic destinies was that yeah it? epic destiny at the very end yeah. your epic destiny at the end uh and going through and like because they would forget their item and then we, they would level up uh every time that you hit a tier mm-hmm. and that was they might have had to go and find something to add on to it or uh like Rob had to find a sharpening stone uh for his axe or you know. Uh, Liam had to find this bow string to put onto it. you know. Just And it could have been anything. It could have been an elixir. It could have been just a magnifying glass. Uh, but I like it when they use it to... It's something they have to go find that you have to use in conjunction with something else. I don't want it to just be like the soul something. I want it to work with something else. Yeah, I guess... And I think that's why I like the the put together a key sort of thing.
1: Well, it's a very common... Uh, you know, really elaborate fetch quest, es- essentially. Yeah. Uh, which is good, you know, it makes for, you can kind of give each component its own little
0: adventure and texture. Uh, I'm also... A- but I also like it, I'm, I think maybe it's just in my head, I want it to feel like it has more of an importance to the character than to anything else. Like, I don't want them to just think this is the item that's going to save the world. I want them to think that I, I'm i the only one that can use this to make it work.
1: Yeah, that's more of a, uh, yeah, that was, was probably more of a, Um, it's more personalized. Uh, mm-hmm. So it doesn't have a broader implication on the story except when wielded by this character. And that's kind of a double whammy. It's like the, it's really the sword and the stone, right? Like the master sword can Mm -hmm. only be removed from the stone by this warrior of destiny. And the warrior of destiny can use the master sword to smite the ultimate evil. Right. Otherwise it's just a sword and a fucking rock. It's useless to just about anybody else. And that's good because it, Plays into this kind of fairy tale notion of of destiny, but sometimes i I don't know I like kind of err against some of that sometimes because again, maybe it's my my sword and sorcery fandom, but sword and sorcery fandom is antithetical to that high fantasy fairy tale notion, which mm-hmm. is Harry Potter whomever is special. Because he has been foretold to to be special, it is something inherent in him that is special, and he spends the events of the films or the books or whatever, living up to that, where the sword and sorcery method, sword and sorcery outlook or view if you're reading Elros of Melmanbone, if you're reading Farfait and Grey Miles or Conan especially uh, is not that it is that these characters are, they they forge their own path they're not destined for shit they they become great because they will not be stopped through their grit and through their mm. skills and through their how clever they are they make their own way in the world. And it doesn't matter if they have the magic sword of destiny or, or like a rock, they'll kick your ass because they're awesome and they've trained and they've been through the, the, the crucible of, uh, challenge and, and adversity that makes them stronger. And I'm more drawn to that second notion than the first notion. Not that to say that I don't think that there's some of the first notion in there, uh, and and it does exist in the sword and sorcery genre too but it's usually not it's usually not a good thing you know if someone is is uh-huh. predestined for something in the sword and sorcery world like in conan it's like oh the girl has a mark and she's predestined to make a journey it's like yeah, she's going to be sacrificed right <laughs> and yeah. it's through the determination of the character that isn't really tied to the plot who like goes like i won't let that happen right i will i will step in and i will I will interrupt fate and I I find that more appealing and more heroic, but I do think there needs to be some of that in there and story items that are too far in the, the fairy tale direction. I I stray away from because of that sensibility I have.
0: I know. Do you, did you ever think of like a going back to Kony and the destroyer with it all at the end there with like a, the God with the horn and all that, Dagoth, Dagoth. <laughs> that ends up becoming this horrible fucking monster yeah. so like there's have you ever thought of having a thing at the end for the characters to go and find like say it is this horn and they're just like we fucking found it and we're gonna make everything great and then all of a sudden it just summons this horrible creature they're like what the fuck well like the horn didn't do anything other than call upon this ancient horrible eldritch god
1: yeah that would be very cool that would be what you call a red herring Uh, Because Mm. you are selling them. It's a little different in Conan, though, because we don't have any evidence. The transformation of the god is complete or is is underway. And so I always took it to mean that the abomination that it becomes has to do with the fact that, if you remember, they're supposed to sacrifice a pure-blooded virgin. Mm-hmm. so when that's supposed to happen though Grace Jones kills the priest and he is not a pure-blooded virgin so I always got the right. impression that that kind of corrupted the whole ritual and caused him to turn into this instead of the the benevolent the you know wonderful God that they all thought he was going to be he, yeah, turned, that looked like the statue. he turned into just some sort of horrible monster that was like ravaging around yeah. but I there is, uh, that. I mean, that is a thing that happens in some movies where it's like you run around like you're yeah, around this big quest and everything to get this thing, and it turns out that the thing is not what you thought it was, and it's actually just really yeah. horrible. That could probably be more appropriate for something like you said, like a Call of Cthulhu or something that had a more fatalistic spin to it. Mm-hmm. I would probably be reluctant to do that in like a, heroic fantasy campaign because i would feel like it was a breach of the the implicit agreement between the players and the
0: no no you're just you're just yeah.
1: doomed. you're just doomed.
0: yeah i'd agree with that but it, but i was yeah, just thinking about so that i was like good. oh i could just hear it at the end just been like what the fuck if you had a very specific
1: amalgam of players at your table that might appreciate that yeah. like oh that's uh that's really fucked up, you know. You have a John Carpenter's <laughs> The Thing ending. You're like, oh, they're gonna get the monster. It's like, no, probably not. <laughs> they're probably both the monster at that point. So that's a, and the movie just ends. And you're like, cool. <laughs> um, it has to be the right kind of game. Uh, VTM yeah, yeah. It'll probably work. Ooh,
0: yeah, uh, it worked very well. Any of those, uh, yeah, anything like you said, the dark, uh, more realistic sort of uh, sort of games I could definitely even, see. Even
1: Curse of Strahd I could have probably ended that way And no, one, as long as because the the players would have gotten the catharsis and the release of like defeating Strahd and him being mm. gone for a short time so maybe splitting the baby there a little bit and just being like no you know or whatever Whoa. like that would be fine but uh, pulling the rug out from them under them entirely like that would be uh, not in keeping with a, with the heroic fantasy RPG. No matter how you use the story item
0: toward that end, that would be. Ah, man,
1: it's kind of good though.
0: <laughs> I want to do yeah, it. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, uh, because I've used a character death and then resurrection as a thing before, mm-hmm. but I've talked to the the player character beforehand I'm like, hey, man, this is what's going to happen. I want your death to mean something and to be a uh, a thing for the story to proceed. And they're always cool about it. So I guess that is something that could be it. Like a like a uh just a, a shitty turn of circumstance can be like a story item. Yeah. It doesn't actually have to be a physical yeah, thing. Yeah, I was gonna
1: actually just ask you that. Like do you think a story item needs to be? But then again you're you're getting I would I would call that a plot device. I wouldn't call it a story Mm. item. It's a plot device. Yeah. If you want to use story item and plot device interchangeably to say that it is something that reveals motives or peels back the layer of the plot, then that's great. But I don't think if you're thinking about it narrowly, an item should be something tangible and physical in the world in which it exists and should have significance or powers in its own right. And an event definitionally probably is doesn't meet that criteria. So it would be a plot device. Like, for instance, a MacGuffin is a plot device, but mm-hmm. not all plot devices are MacGuffins. So, uh, yeah. I, I don't... You could... The benefit of having it manifested in... Something tangible in the world has uh, notable benefits because it is something that the characters can possess, and if it's something that the possession of it is significant, then I think that's when you would want to make it
0: an item as opposed
1: to a plot device. makes sense so. mm-hmm.
0: i Well, I think that is going to be uh, a podcast for this week. Got nice and deep into that of the uh the story items. And if anybody out there has anything to say about story item items, their McGuffins or their red herrings, hey, let us know the stories of your old games. Send it to Inside the GM Studio. Or if you just want to say, hey, Dave, you sound fucking pretty good looking with you from your voice. I'm pretty good looking. Is it true? We can tell you that eh, it's pretty it's all right. But, but uh for this week, for Inside the GM Studio, I've been your host, I'm David. A good night.